so, with no further ado, I, I want to share with you a, a quote from my mother-in-law. She said, when things come out of the sea, you probably shouldn't be in it. That's what she thinks. She feels that it's her duty to send updates and text messages and phone calls and emails and carrier pigeons about any and every aquatic danger. And I love to go surfing, and so this happens quite often. It didn't help that 2015 was the worst year on record for unprovoked shark attacks, with the predatory fish biting about uh, 98 people. 98 unprovoked shark attacks. So my phone was busily buzzing all year long with her concern. And to make matters worse... One single, solitary, yellow-bellied sea snake decided to wash up at Silver Strand. Apparently, they're from the tropical regions of the Pacific Ocean brought here by El Nino. They're considered to be incredibly venomous. I appreciate my mother-in-law's concern, but my response to her usually has something to do with how dangerous traffic can be. You know, or also, this is a new one for me, the danger of watching television. Did you know that every single year, 18,000 people are injured by their television sets? 18,000 people are injured every year by their falling television sets. So that means that TVs are 99.45% more dangerous than sharks. But if it was reported that the four beasts that we see in Daniel's vision here tonight, if it was reported that these four beasts were coming out of the sea, I definitely would hang up my surfboard and wetsuit once and for all. Because these beasts that we're going to encounter tonight are absolutely ferocious. Tonight, our section in Daniel is about a vision he has where four beasts come out of the sea. We're entering into a new section tonight in the book of Daniel that contains apocalyptic visions that help the readers imagine a new world and a new identity. Often when we think of things like apocalyptic, we think of like destruction of the world at this end time event, but but apocalypse also is about a new world and a new identity. This new world and new identity will be for the readers here and now in a new light, a new perspective. And while the things that we're going to go through tonight are really strange and really, really perplexing, probably like some of the strangest stuff that you'll come across in the Bible, I think it serves an important lesson about human arrogance and also about human hope. So, with no further ado, let's stand together tonight and read from Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. It says, In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream filled with visions while he was lying on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream in summary fashion. Daniel explained, I was watching in my vision during the night as the four winds of the sky were stirring up the great sea. Then four large beasts came up from the sea. They were different 
from one another. God, this is already perplexing. This is already strange stuff. But we ask that you would teach us tonight about what it means to to have our hope in you and that we wouldn't be people who are filled of arrogance and pride. But Lord, that we would surrender all to you because you are worthy and you are deserving of all honor and all praise. We love you, God. So I ask you to speak to us tonight. Amen. You may be seated. So let's, let's walk through these first couple of initial verses in a little bit more detail. It says, in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, so we're looking maybe at like 553 BC, Daniel at this time would have been about 67 years old. Now, we are looking backwards now. We had come to a point where Daniel is like 80 plus years old. Now we're going kind of back in time to where he's about 67 years old when he has this dream-like vision in the middle of the night. It says, Daniel had a dream filled with visions while he was lying on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream in summary fashion. So Daniel explained, I was watching in my vision during the night as the four winds of the sky. You can also translate that as of the heavens, because it's the same term. The Aramaic term is Shemayim, which could mean sky or heaven. It depends on the context, whether it's referring to heaven or if it's referring to the sky. The same thing goes in Hebrew and the same thing goes for the Greek word Uranus. So it could mean either sky or heavens, but, but the four winds of the skies or of the heavens were stirring up the great sea. So you've got the winds from the north, the south, the east, and the west all coming together and thrashing about the great sea, which is probably the Mediterranean Sea. That, that's what it was referred to as the great sea. And so it's all in chaos. It's all crazy, destructive. Then four large beasts came up from the sea. They were different from one another. So what I want you to do is take a moment with the people around you. I don't want to just describe these things. I want you to pull out the characteristics that you find in the next couple of verses and illustrate it. Draw what you see as you uh, go through the text. Daniel 7, 4 through 7. Talk in groups and illustrate each beast that comes out of the sea. All right? There's a couple papers, so maybe you can split it up. Maybe one person will do one of the beasts. Someone else can do another. So go ahead and and do this as a team together. All right. Crowns down. Crowns down. Time is up. So is that challenging? Why was it challenging? Because you only had four colors. Why was it challenging? Colors shouldn't really matter. It's weird, right? They're strange, perplexing animals. Any other? Yeah, it's hard to... (laughs) Well, if you remember, if you can think back, if you've been with us... Uh, throughout the book of Daniel. Maybe you remember when we went through chapter 2 with the large multi-metaled statue. Do you guys remember this statue right up here? 
uh, on the screen here. It was had all different types of metal. Daniel 7 here builds upon this picture of history and adds detail about God's coming reign, about his rule. The powers that oppose God's coming reign and rule are pictured here as monsters coming out of the raging sea. And now, a common motif in the Old Testament, a common theme is that the sea is a place of chaos and, and disorder and destruction. And here, the monsters are, are the spiritual powers that stand behind a series of kingdoms and kings and empires. And it finally leads to an arrogant bully. We're told here, uh, as we move forward into next week a little bit, uh, chapter 7, verse 17 tells us that these four beasts that you just drew right there, they represent four kings and their kingdoms, arising one after another. We're never told explicitly which king this may represent or which, which kingdom each of these might represent. Like, it's not saying like, oh, this leopard with four heads and four wings represents Denmark. Or that this lion with wings represents Chile or anything. But there are clues within the text that we're going to walk through that might tune us into what some of these might represent. And we can do this by putting ourselves into the shoes as best as we can of the original writers and hearers to get a better picture. And I think this is really critical to understand as we're reading the Bible. You know, when we are coming through different types of literature in the Bible, we need to try our very best to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience as best as we can because there are things that you may be going through in your devotional time where it might not automatically right away apply to your current circumstance. You know what I'm talking about? Like uh, if you're going through the laws of Leviticus or something, you might need to take a step back and think, okay, what might this have looked like as the people were traveling throughout the wilderness, it might not automatically apply to the 21st century things that I might be going through today. So we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Daniel's original writers and hearers as best as we can. They were living under the Greek rule of Antiochus Epiphanes at the time when this was written down. The, the chapter's original writers and, and hearers might have seen the sequence of these beasts as the following. Babylon, Media, Persia, and then the Greek kingdoms. But as Daniel continued to be read in both Jewish and Christian circles in their communities, interpreters saw a different sequence of the beasts. They saw Babylon, they saw Medo-Persia, which is like this this combined union of the empires of the Medes and the Persians, and then the Greek kingdoms, and then the fourth one representing Rome. Each beast is fierce and dangerous. The first three are at least comparable to some animal with a deformity. But when we come to the fourth one, it's a little bit different. But let, let's hear what, what each of these might represent. Verse 4 says, The first one was like a lion with eagle's wings. As I watched, its wings were pulled off and it was lifted up from the ground. It was made to stand on two feet like a human being and a human mind was given to it. 
So how many of you had your lion on all fours? How many of you, I, I saw some of your other ones, they were on all fours too. How many of them maybe were perched up? Nobody? Okay, yours are, yours are kind of, you know, artistic, uh, you know, whatever, whatever you might. Okay, I see it. All right, that looks good. But, but what might be happening here? Uh, first, the lion emerges from the sea. The lion is the king of animals, right? The king of the jungle, even though a lion doesn't live in the jungle. It lives in the savannah. Uh, but it's a symbol of strength, of courage, of ferocity, of destructiveness and fearsomeness. Has anyone ever pet a lion before? Walter apparently has. Well, this might possibly represent Babylon. Babylon was an empire recognized by its swiftness and boldness, swift as a lion and an eagle. That's what Jeremiah 4, 7 and 13 say. That's what Jeremiah 49 also says. But stone reliefs, you know, like stone carvings along the walls in ancient Babylon were decorated on the processional way with lions with wings. The reference to plucking the lion's wings, kind of like pulling the wings off of a fly or off of a bee, might possibly be a reference to King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember his period of insanity where he was really prideful and then he lost his mind and he became really animalistic. He was sweating, his hair grew really long, his nails were grown out and he was eating grass like livestock. But then he gets restored. And so the, the remainder of the latter part here of verse 4 might describe the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar. That, that a human mind was given to him. That, that he was set on two feet like a human being. That might refer to, to Babylon, this first beast. Then verse 5 says, Then a second beast appeared like a bear. It was raised up on one side. How did you draw that? What, what does that mean? Did you draw like it raised up on one side? Yes or no? No, you didn't. Okay. But that's okay. That's just what the Bible says that it was raised up on one side, which is confusing to me. Like, what, what does that mean it was raised up on one side? Is it like slouching or is it maybe rearing up? Is it talking about like front side and back side? It's, it's slouched. I, I, we're going to talk about that in a second. And then there were three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. I like that. Did you draw the, the ribs? Yeah. All right, good. It was told, get up and devour much flesh. There's a, on Valentine's Day, we weren't able to celebrate Valentine's because we had church. And then my wife had this big old uh, benefit dinner that she was putting on for her children's choir. But the next day we had planned to go to Santa Barbara to our favorite Italian restaurant. And uh, they've got a big sign. It's called Palazzo. It's on State Street. And we used to go there all the time when we were in college and just grub on down because you would order like a half size meal, like a half size spaghetti or something. And it would be plenty for you and like four other people. And we went there expecting to not leave hungry, to fill our appetite. They've actually got a sign that says, people don't leave here hungry. And we roll up right by it and we see it's all closed. We don't know if they got shut down or what, but we were so, so bummed out about it. But, but here this beast is told to 
to dig in, to devour much flesh. This second beast to emerge is a bear. It's huge, it's cumbersome, strong, and a fearsome creature. It's here encouraged to indulge its appetite. This is probably, uh, possibly, a remark about the greedy expansionism of the nations. This might refer to the Medo-Persian Empire, the empires of the Medes and the Persians. That that part still confuses me, though, that the bear was raised up on one side. I think what it might refer to is this coalition, this union of Media and Persia. They were united in an unbalanced relationship, an unbalanced empire. So one was higher than the other in this relationship. The bear, though, is grubbing down on ribs. Three ribs held securely in the mouth of this bear apparently symbolizes military conquest, perhaps relating to the conquest of Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt, who were all destroyed by the Persians. Verse 6 says, After these things, as I was watching, another beast like a leopard appeared with four bird-like wings on its back. This beast had four heads and ruling authority was given to it. So this third beast is another fearsome predator whose natural speed is enhanced by an unnatural capacity to swoop in any direction. It's a leopard with four heads, which is so weird, and four wings. Traditionally, this was understood as the Persian Empire, but the leopard seems to, seems more like Greek. It seems like the the Greek kingdoms of Alexander. The four heads seem to be the four kingdoms of Alexander. After he died in 323 BC, his generals divided up his empire into four regions, hence the four heads. This leopard had four wings. That's probably a symbol about speed and conquest, which Alexander sure had. He conquered the known world before he had turned 32 years old. But after these things, verse 7, as I was watching in the night visions, the Aramaic text here says, behold. So, so I'm watching in the night visions and behold, which means like, check it out or look or see. Check it out. A fourth beast appeared. One dreadful, terrible, and very strong. This fourth beast, it differs in that it's described without a name of an animal in comparison. Apparently it was so fearsome that Daniel couldn't even put a name to it. He couldn't find anything to really compare it to. It had two large rows of iron teeth. It devoured and crushed, and anything that was left it trampled with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that came before it, and it had ten horns. Sounds to me like Megatron or or some type of a transformer. Maybe like an iron-toothed great white shark slash elephant might be some animal comparison. Originally, the fourth beast was understood as Greece. And perhaps for good reason, because it kind of sounds like an elephant, you know. It's trampling through the, the area. And also, because the battle elephant was introduced west by 
the Greeks. And it came to be a particular symbol for different Greek kings, like Antiochus III, Antiochus IV, and Alexander. They would use elephants to battle, which is pretty crazy. But by the time the book of Daniel entered into the canon, the canon of, of Scripture, it was thought of as the Roman Empire. It's ten horns here compared to the ten toes of that multi-metaled statue back in Daniel 2.42. Ten stands for completeness. And the last of these four empires is certainly the most destructive. As we will soon discover, it's also the most arrogant and the most godless. Verse 8 says, As I was contemplating the horns, another horn, a small one, came up between them, and three of the former horns were torn out by the roots to make room for it. Like Imagine like a, a tooth that gets just pushed out of the way, and another tooth is, is coming forth. It sounds like it wouldn't be very comfortable. But this horn had eyes. Resembling human eyes and a mouth speaking arrogant things. This horn represents an evil king. An evil king with an indecently inflated ego. And Jeff always talks about a, a good acronym for ego. E-G-O. Edging God out. And that's exactly what we do when we hold on and hold fast to our egos and hold fast to our arrogance and our own pride and how, how we appear. When we do that, we edge God out. That's exactly what is happening here with the horn. Not only is it bursting forth and pushing all these other horns out of the way, but, but it's speaking arrogant things. This is a type of anti-Messiah or anti-Christ, a really bad dude. I think that this represents the utter arrogance of human pride and destructiveness. You know, the four beasts have appeared with their fierce characteristic. And, and the first three are pretty, pretty ferocious. They would make you worry, but their instincts are such that God can actually use them. God can use them, but the fourth beast is like a nation that itself is trying to make itself God. Beast four thinks it's playing the game of thrones. But there is no game of thrones in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. There's one throne and God's on it. And he'll never be moved. Arrogance ignores the superiority of God, his purposes, and his people. It's saying, no, my ways are, are better than your ways, God. My plans are better than your plans. But no, we know that Scripture tells us my plans, that is God's plans, are far above any plans that we could come up with. Verses 9 and 10, finally we get, get out of the, the whole beast mode type of situation here. I'm tired of these beasts and this arrogant talk. Here we have something ferocious. It's even more dangerous, more devastating, more deadly, more powerful, and all completely good. While I was watching, thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days, or the Ancient One, or the One who had been living forever, or the Eternal God took His seat. 
His attire was white like snow. The hair of his head was like lamb's wool. His throne was ablaze with fire, and its wheels were all aflame. A river of fire was streaming forth and proceeding from his presence. Many thousands were ministering to him. Many tens of thousands stood ready to serve him. The court convened, and the books were opened. We just sang that God's love is relentless. I think we also might need to sing that God's love is dangerous. Because here we see him pretty much fully engulfed in flames. And this is not the first time we've seen God or the revelation of God fully engulfed in flames. We think of Moses and the scene in Exodus 3 with the burning bush. Here it's, it's utterly terrifying and it puts these other beasts to complete and utter shame. The Ancient of Days, that, that name, that title for God, or the Ancient One, or the One who had been living forever, the Eternal God, that's not a knock on God. It's not like saying the Old Timer or the Old Geezer. It means that God is venerable, that He's respected, judicious, and wise. What do you think about His white clothing? Maybe that represents his purity. But as we're trying to see this whole scene unfold, everything's on fire. His throne, the river, everything's burning. So it might just be the brightness, the luminosity, the nobility and splendor. Fire in the Bible and in our lives can be an entirely positive image. It can be a great tool. You know, we can keep warm. We can cook with it. It can be a a source of protection and guidance. However, it's commonly suggested as something transcendent and absolute. Awesome and dangerous, mysterious and destructive. Have you ever tried to make fire before? Maybe flint and steel, maybe rubbing some sticks together. It's hard work, but it's pretty incredible if you get to that point where you have an ember and then it begins to to fan into a flame. It's absolutely amazing that this whole new property can come about simply by making friction, oxygen, and heat. I mean, it's amazing to see. God's appearing often is described in imagery like a violent storm whose lightning flashes with the fire of heaven. God's splendor can also be described naturally like the burning, hot, vibrant sun. Then, verse 11 and 12 says, I kept on watching because of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. I was watching until the beast was killed and its body destroyed and thrown into the flaming fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their ruling authority had already been removed, though they were permitted to go on living for a time and a season. The Ancient of Days it doesn't even break a sweat here. The dictator is, is thrown down, immediately defeated. Death and or destruction comes by fire. Now, execution by fire in the Old Testament is a common image, common image of divine judgment and divine punishment. But here, the, the winged lion man, the slouching bear grubbing on ribs, and the four-headed, four-winged leopard... They're allowed to live. Apparently, these were not explicitly evil. Though they were grotesque and fierce and dangerous and frightening. But perhaps these three were allowed to live because they were going to serve the purposes of God. 
But I think the important part here to see is that God easily defeats this. He assumes authority and his rule and reign appears on the clouds of heaven, as we see in in verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions and with the clouds of the sky and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the ancient of days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor, and sovereignty. That means like all powerfulness. All peoples, nations, and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away. His kingdom will not be destroyed. So who is this son of man? Who is this, you could also translate, one like a human being? What, what do you think? What are your thoughts? Jesus, yeah. I mean, we could say that, but if we're reading it within the context of the Old Testament and say the New Testament, like we have no idea who Jesus is at this point in time. Uh, if you're on the ground with these people, who, what might you think? God, yeah. Even though God, but God's already sitting on the throne. Like, what might you think? Who? Yeah, the Messiah, right? The Messiah to come. So essentially Jesus, but they don't know his name is Jesus yet, apparently. But those are are great answers. There's a a number of ways we could interpret this. A Messiah figure, an end-time redeemer, God's anointed ruler. Here's a a slide up with all of these uh, different interpretations. Uh, it could also be a symbol for God's people and the authority that is going to be given to them. That, that's what we'll see next week, actually, that this actually might represent the corporate identity, the collective reference of the people of Israel, that this might represent restored Israel. Or it's an angelic figure, perhaps, maybe Michael or Gabriel, the angels, or is this Jesus? Without a perspective from the New Testament, it's certainly logical to understand this as maybe like the corporate experience of Israel. But with the New Testament, we see the New Testament picturing Jesus speaking of himself as the Son of Man who comes on the clouds of heaven. So what I think is going on here is I think the authors of the New Testament are drawing upon this figure of Daniel in Daniel 7 realizing that Jesus is the fulfillment of this image here. My take, plain and simple, is that this is Jesus. This is Jesus. But we also need to consider it from their perspective. Say, you know what? This might represent the corporate identity of Israel, who then Jesus uh, fulfills. But this is Jesus. And it's his work. It's his authority And he's worthy of it. He's the one with true power. And all our boasting should be about him and about his work. The last thing I want to do tonight, I know this is a very strange passage, but we're going to continue it next week and it'll make a lot more sense as we put the pieces of the puzzle together. I know this is a lot of like ancient world type of stuff that may seem weird and very foreign to us. Well, it is. It's thousands of years old, and but still, it, it has purposes for us. I mean, we deal with a lot of arrogance today in the Christian church, in Journey the Church. 
And this is not the way we should be. We, we have here this image of complete and utter arrogance and pride. But then we also have this complete picture of, of hope and true authority. And that belongs to God. But the last thing I want to draw on tonight is, is the Son of Man. Now, we see this is kind of stepping into the New Testament. Son of Man and Son of God. These are two titles for Jesus. They're called Christological titles. Um, you might think, well, what's the difference? Why is he called Son of Man in some places and Son of God in another? I think a lot of people just try and understand it as, well, okay, uh, the Son of God signifies Jesus' divinity, that he's divine, and the Son of Man signifies his humanity, right? That would make sense. It's actually backwards, which is very strange. The Son of Man actually has to do more with his divinity, his heavenly God status. Son of God, the basic meaning is belonging to God, the people of Israel. The Son of God also refers to emperors. Roman emperors were called sons of God. So it's very earthy. Jesus did not use it of himself, only passively in the Gospel of John a few times. It's to be found, though, used often by Paul and the author of Hebrews. Paul writes in Romans 1.4 that Jesus had been declared Son of God on account of the resurrection. Old Testament usage of the Son of God also includes angels, Israel, and kings. So it has certainly some divine aspects, but a lot of earthy things. Israel, kings, emperors. But the Son of Man, this is a title that Jesus explicitly uses in reference to himself. I believe this refers more to his divinity than his humanity. The Aramaic in Daniel, but also in Hebrew, is Ben Adam, son of of man or son of humanity has three contexts in the Old Testament as a form of address to Ezekiel. In the book of Ezekiel, he keeps getting called the son of man. Sometimes uh, the translators will like to translate that as O mortal, but it's son of man. And it's used throughout the book whenever he's addressed. This also uh, could refer to a future eschatological, that means end times, Figure or a cosmic authoritative figure, as we see in Daniel 7, or to emphasize the frailty of human nature. The Gospel of John shows the Son of Man descending, coming to the earth, and ascending. It shows him as a pre existing figure before creation, before everything. He is co equal and co eternal with God. And also, the Son of Man is linked to the incarnation where Jesus comes both in the carne, you know, like carne asada. He is in the flesh. His humanity and divinity are together. 100% man, 100% God. The Son of Man has a home in heaven. The Son of Man is lifted up. The Son of Man will return. So this title, Son of Man, has a lot to do, I think, more with his divinity than with his humanity. But all this is to say, the one coming on the clouds of heaven, he brings divine power and divine authority. And that's the God we serve, who has ultimate authority. You know, I, I was talking uh, 
to someone the other day and they were freaking out about some situation, anxiety, depression, whatever it, it might have been. And I, I think those are real issues. Um, I think that sometimes depression, anxiety, those things can be chemical imbalances. But I'm not really sure if this was the case. But, but this person just kept on freaking out about stuff. Like they, they kept on feeling like they were being attacked by the enemy and all this sort of stuff, which is absolutely, may have been the case. But I'm thinking like, you've got a poverty mindset. You think that you've got a God who is contained and in a box. You don't, you don't understand that, that all of the, the forces of darkness or evil of, of this world are nothing in comparison to who God is. I'm like, if you could just imagine and realize, and all I told her was, God is all-powerful. And I don't think you realize that. All-powerful means Completely powerful. It means all powerful. Not just like sometimes powerful, but completely powerful. That means the enemy stands no chance against God. He, he's the one who has divine power and authority. No one else has complete power and complete authority. So fear not. You know, if, if we've got beasts coming in and out of the sea like this, we still don't need to fear. You know, we, we should fear nothing in our world because our God is all-powerful. So let's leave here tonight knowing that our God is amazing. Our God is stronger than any, anything we could ever come up against. Would you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful that you are powerful. And we ask for a mindset, a lifestyle that would contemplate on your majesty, that you are majestic, that you are the ruling figure, Lord, that you have sovereignty, that you are all-powerful, completely. Lord, and we serve you, the awesome God, the powerful God. But Lord, we know that your power and your dangerousness characterized by love and we thank you for that That you are powerful but you are full of steadfast love and mercy so god i pray that tonight we would leave this place hoping and trusting in your power and your strength and your ability to overcome our greatest fears we are no longer slaves to these fears because you have overcome we love you in jesus name Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, two things real quick. Uh,